to chapter 91 of A History of England. I'm David Beeson, and I'm delighted to say that, after spending so much time talking about war after war, the first five coalitions, the Peninsular War, the War of 1812, and then the Sixth Coalition, this week I'm going to talk about two peace agreements. Though, to be fair, another war is going to sneak in as well, but just to show its nose. We saw last week that the War of 1812 was never more than a sideshow for Britain. It had bigger fish to fry back in Europe. Two episodes back, we talked about how the biggest fish of them all, Napoleon, had never recovered from his disastrous invasion of Russia and had ended up, in 1814, cast into outermost darkness, though that's an unfair way of describing the charming Mediterranean island of Elba, where he was exiled. Europe was at last at peace again. The question now was what shape it would have, which means who would be running the show, and how peace could be preserved. The old doctrine had been balance of power, where the continent was divided into two roughly equal camps growling at each other. Think Cold War and the balance of terror between West and East. Who was in each camp might alter. The Austrians were allies of Britain for a time, then allies of France, for instance. But the structure was always the same. Given how many wars there had been in the 17th and 18th centuries, that system had clearly not worked terribly well. The new doctrine would be the concept of nations. Nation would work with nation to solve difficulties by diplomatic rather than military means. To get the ball rolling, the great powers that had defeated France organised the Congress of Vienna that would work out the rules of the game. It's never met in plenary session. Mostly discussions took place between small groups and often in an informal context. A dinner, a ball, and it was very clearly run by the great powers, Russia, Austria, Prussia and Britain, with a host of smaller nations such as Spain, Portugal, Sweden or the various states that made up Germany or Italy around the edges. The brilliantly able and highly devious Talleyrand, who had been Napoleon's foreign minister and somehow contrived to hang on to his job for a while under the new regime, managed to get France into the inner circle too. Who were the players in this emerging concert? Don't forget that the French Revolution had initially tried to uphold certain notions of human rights, of liberty, equality and fraternity. That got somewhat obscured by the terror and then by the authoritarian monarchy of Napoleon's empire. Even so, the ideas clung on and the victory over France was also a victory over the promotion of human rights. It was, in other words, a victory for conservatism. Two of the victorious great powers, Austria and Russia, were headed by men who called themselves emperors. The Russian emperor, the Tsar, headed a regime that prided itself on being an autocracy. These days, anyone in Russia who called the ruler an autocrat would probably be in serious trouble. That's certainly a change, though I'm not sure it's progress. Prussia had a king, unbridled by any irritating inconveniences, such as a parliament. Of all the victorious powers, Britain had put the most restrictions on its sovereign. The king still had serious influence, as we've seen, but real power resided in parliament. It was truly a constitutional monarchy, 
even though it had no written constitution. What made the British constitution then, and still makes up most of it today, is a series of procedures regarded as customary, backed by Acts of Parliament in specific areas. In any case, even in that constitutional framework, the governing Tory party had moved steadily in a more conservative direction during the war. For instance, the special demands of wartime had led to William Pitt the Younger dropping his early enthusiasm for parliamentary reform and to suspending habeas corpus, allowing imprisonment without trial. Pitt and the Tories had been in power, with a gap of just 15 months, for 30 years. And what about France? The Senate that had voted to depose Napoleon had also voted to bring back the rightful king. That was Louis XVIII, brother of the executed Louis XVI. Yes, there were several brothers, all called Louis, and distinguished by a second forename. Louis XVI's son, the uncrowned king Louis XVII, had died in jail. The fact that he was king by right matters particularly here. He embodied the notion of legitimacy embraced by a large, though not dominant, current of political thought in France, the ultra-royalists. They rejected more liberal 18th-century notions of monarchy, which felt it had to be upheld because it was beneficial to the population, or because it reflected some kind of contract between people and ruler, or for some other rational consideration. No, for the ultra-royalists, monarchy had to be embraced because it was decreed from on high for all humanity, and that was that. Good, bad, whatever... It was what heaven had handed down. Fiction presents the return of the king as wonderful. Take Tolkien, for instance. Personally, I prefer Terry Pratchett. Asked what he thinks about the possible appearance of an heir to a vacant throne, the inimitable corporate carrot replies, I don't think about it, sir. That's all sword-in-a-stone nonsense. Kings don't come out of nowhere waving a sword and putting everything right. Sword and a stone nonsense, yes, especially when the returning king is someone like Louis XVIII of France, self-indulgent to the point of being a beast, a drunkard and a womanizer, weak, not particularly bright and paranoid, hardly material for public rejoicing. This then was the cast of characters behind the Congress of Vienna, hardly a hotbed of liberalism. And there's one more key figure to add, Viscount Castlereagh, the British Foreign Secretary. He was responsible for drafting the terms the Allies imposed on France. They included the restoration of Louis XVIII, a reduction in French territory, but, generously, not right back to the pre-revolutionary borders. France had no indemnity to pay, and there would be no long-term army of occupation. The Allies were keen to help Louis and ensure his regime survived. Castlereagh was also behind the calling of the Congress of Vienna and would play a key role in drafting its final declarations. To get an idea of what kind of organisation the Congress was, both for good and for bad, it's worth looking at how it dealt with the worst difficulty it encountered. This came to be known as the Polish-Saxon Crisis. The victorious powers naturally wanted something for their victory, which mostly meant some satisfying chunks of other people's territory. Prussia wanted to take over the whole of the Kingdom of Saxony. Russia, which already held some of Poland, wanted to take over the rest of it, an ambition that filled Austria with dread. It would make Russia a lot too powerful and a lot too close. 
Ironically, this led to secret conversations between Britain, Austria and, amazingly, their recent enemy France for a military alliance against their nominal allies, Prussia and Russia. One of the things that conspiracy theorists never seem to accept is that it's practically impossible to keep a conspiracy secret. Russia learned of the plot against it, and the response of Tsar Alexander I was remarkable. He voluntarily proposed that he would moderate his demands. And why? Because he felt that the construction of the new concert of Europe that was underway was worth sacrificing some territorial ambitions for. The idea of a three-power alliance against him was deeply unattractive, not simply because it would be powerful, but because it would be a reversion to the old balance-of-power way of doing things, with two armed camps in confrontation. So, an autocrat showed some enlightenment and made sacrifices to save the structure it was hoped would preserve the peace. In passing, that didn't do Poland or Saxony any good. Prussia got over half Saxony's territory and nearly half its population. Russia got most of Poland, with Austria and Prussia splitting the rest apart from Krakow, left as a free city, so the Poles themselves emerged without a country they could call their own. As I said, Castlereagh was central to these endeavours, and when he eventually went home, his place at the Congress of Vienna was taken over by the Duke of Wellington. This move by a military leader into politics is unusual in British history, though far more common in the US, of course, starting with the first president, George Washington. Castlereagh and Wellington were figures of the first rank. But don't forget that the negotiations with America to agree the Treaty of Ghent and end the War of 1812 were taking place at the same time. Last week, I quoted the American historian David Hickey on that war. He maintains that while the Americans may not have won the war, they certainly won the peace. I suppose he says that because, although Britain lost nothing in the treaty, it also gained nothing from it. That may well have been down, as Hickey suggests, to the fact that Britain's negotiating team at Ghent was weak, made up of far less prominent figures than the Americans sent. So perhaps they were indeed outmaneuvered. However, given the stakes at Vienna, it's not surprising that Britain sent such a weak team to Ghent. It just shows, again, that the War of 1812 was a sideshow for Britain. It just wanted to be shot of it. The discussions in Vienna lasted from September 1814 to June 1815. Well before they came to an end, the main show for Britain, when it came to war, would massively heat up again. On the 25th of February 1815, Napoleon decided that exile on Elba really wasn't the lifestyle for which he'd striven throughout his career. So he escaped. He landed back in France with a thousand men. No problem, thought King Louis. With such a small force, what possible resistance could the ex-emperor put up when he sent men down to arrest him? Well, if the soldiers went over to the emperor's side, it turns out he could offer plenty. As Napoleon marched across France towards Paris, unit after unit of the army deserted the king and rallied to the emperor. Louis had to make a break for the border, and eventually took refuge in Ghent, in present-day Belgium, then part of the Congress of Vienna's new creation, the United Kingdom of the Netherlands. There he was safely behind British lines, manned by an army commanded by the urgently recalled Duke of Wellington. 
You may be sick of wars of coalitions. I'm afraid that we have one more, but at least it's the last. The Seventh Coalition sprang into readiness to meet Napoleon. Wellington guessed, rightly as it happened, that Napoleon would strike northwards towards him. So, following his usual policy of picking his battlefields and ensuring he had a good line of retreat, he scouted around until he lighted on an area of open fields that suited him. It was near the village of Waterloo. The other army of the 7th Coalition in Belgium was Prussian. Its commanders were veterans of the terrible defeats inflicted by Napoleon at the double battles of Jena and Auerstedt in 1806. There they'd watched old commanders take a terrible beating for trying to fight a 19th century battle with 18th century tactics. The new breed of commander included Karl von Clausewitz, the man who would emerge as the great theoretician of war, he coined the expression, war is the continuation of politics with other means. He'd been captured at Jena, a tough apprenticeship, and had joined the Russian army in order not to fight with the French after Napoleon forced Prussia into an alliance. He was in Belgium as chief of staff of a Prussian army corps. Chief of staff of the whole army was August von Neisenau. That has a G in front of it, though I know it doesn't sound that way. He'd worked hard to get Prussia back into the war against France during the years of alliance with Napoleon, travelling secretly to Austria, Russia, Britain and Sweden to get a new coalition going. He, however, distrusted Wellington and was worried about his desire for a clean line of retreat to the coast. Would he simply decamp with his army to England and abandon the Prussians if things turned rough? But the key figure was the overall Prussian commander, Gebhard von Blücher. He was a little crazy, having believed some time before that a Frenchman had got him impregnated by an elephant. But he'd been a cavalry general who'd fought hard at Auerstedt, and, though no young sprig, he was 73 in 1815, he'd learnt lessons from Prussia's defeat. And he made a solemn promise to Wellington that he could count on his support if push came to shove. Push was about to come to shove, and in a big, big way. But we'll save that for next week. In the meantime, why not enjoy our companion podcast, Who the Hell is Norfolk? Episode 3 is out now. (laughs) 